All right, welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. So it is my turn, and like we teased in the previous episode, we are now going to read a story that is very similar to our last story. Last story was Cougar by Maria Anderson, and this story is one that I picked called Trilobites by Brees DJ Pancake, which, what a byline, right? This is apparently the story that got him that weird spelling of DJ, D apostrophe J, when the Atlantic first printed this story they made that error and he just said oh that's great and kept it so a legend was born pretty sure it was this story yeah i guess i'll tell you a little bit about him to start i guess uh so i was just like looking for stories to share on our facebook group which is something you should all join. We link to it and mention it in every episode. But uh, I was just looking for something to share and I forget how exactly I came across this guy, but I came across him and then looked for his stories. So first of all, his name is Brees D apostrophe J Pancake. I mean, his full name is Brees Dexter Pancake. Just a wonderful, wonderful byline. So I was intrigued for that reason. Um, It turns out he was a native of West Virginia and he was published in The Atlantic a bunch in the 70s. But then he, at the age of 26, uh, he commits suicide. And what a waste of a terrific byline, right? I'm like, this is a guy like at his peak almost. I mean, it it only ended up being his peak because he died. But I don't know. He seemed to have left like a real mark. And he seems to be remembered by a lot of fellow writers of his time. I mean, he was only 26 and he was writing stuff that was getting published frequently. And as you'll hear, he had like a definite like tone and kind of like range of top and themes that he was hitting on. Anyway, uh, the story is called Trilobites. It was published in the Atlantic in 1977. And I will read you a section. Ginny is at the other window and she peers through a knot hole in the plywood. I say, see that light green spot on the second hill? Yeah. That's the copper on your all's roof. She turns, stares at me. I come here lots, I say. I breathe the musty air. I turn away from her and look out the window to Company Hill, but I can feel her stare. Company Hill looks bigger in the dusk, and I think of all the hills around town I've never set foot on. Ginny comes up behind me, and there's a glass crunch with her steps. The hurt arm goes around me, and the tiny spot of blood cold against my back. What is it, Collie? Why can't we have any fun? When I was a young punk, I tried to run away from home. I was walking through this meadow on the other side of the hill, and the shadow passed over me. I honest to God thought it was a pterodactyl. It was a damned airplane. I was so damn mad I came home. I peel chips of paint from the window frame, wait for her to talk. She leans against me and I kiss her real deep. Her waist bunches in my hands. The skin of her neck is almost too white in the faded evening. I know she doesn't understand. I slide her to the floor. Her scent rises to me and I shove crates aside to make room. I don't wait. She isn't making love. She's getting laid. All right, I think. All right, get laid. I pull her pants around her ankles, rut her. I think of Tinker's sister. Ginny isn't here. Tinker sister is under me. A wash of blue light passes over me. I open my eyes to the floor, smell that tang of rain-wet wood. Black snakes. It was the only time he had to whip me. Let me go with you, I say. I want to be sorry, but I can't. Feels really out of context. Reading that section. It's like, okay, what you're reading that section? All right. (laughs) But when I read it, I felt like that was kind of like the point. And I also felt like it showed you a couple things that Mr. Pancake here does well, right? Which is this kind of like authentic y, folksy dialogue that feels real. This like easy back and forth between these characters who are not on the same page about what they're talking about, right? Or what they're thinking and how easily he goes 
from the narrator, what he's saying to like what he's thinking, you know, it's first person, but he's just kind of slipping back and forth. He's, he's saying one thing to the woman in front of him, but he, his head is somewhere else making all kinds of other connections. And that's what the story does like throughout. Right. So even when he's telling you that he's in this Creek killing this snapping turtle, he's throughout that whole scene talking about his dad and talking about his friend and talking about this and that and how he feels lost and he wants to bang Ginny, but Ginny went to New York. Like it's all over the place like there's no one scene where you're kind of in it and not making connections to something else it's interesting now that i'm hearing myself talk that we talk all the time you do especially about like the fictive dream and like how you can establish that and why you don't want to ruin it and how you know bad writing is what pulls you out of it in some points and here's a writer who is in complete control but he's going everywhere and it's mind-blowing that you aren't pulled from the story by the story itself right we talk about how like when you're a in a story and someone walks into the room and you have to look up from your book, you're literally pulled out of it, right? Yeah. Or like, if you're stressed about something that day, you're literally pulled out of it by like this external exterior thing. And obviously bad writing or writing that is struggling somehow or needs some kind of an edit can do that as well if you have to stop and pause and reread. I didn't have to stop and pause and reread necessarily for this. Like once I'm reading, I'm going. But I'm blown away that I didn't have to because he is doing so many things at once. And for some reason, it works. I'm not pulled out of it. I'm not confused or overwhelmed or distracted even. And this scene is one of these things where it's like, there it is. There's every mention of every theme that he's touched on so far, all in one section. Yeah, it's a great culmination. I think the reason this the fictive dream isn't necessarily for a scene. And right. I think the reason that this works so well is what we're dreaming are his, the character's thoughts and impressions. Okay, yeah. Right? And we can track them because we've grown to know this character so well that all the connections he's making we recognize because he's brought them up before and that's why in this scene you know when he looks at uh, does he look at a literal snake or he thinks about a snake and about being whipped but we've been introduced to that idea before so we recognize it so he just pulls that in just for that brief little half a sentence and then moves on to the next thing and we're we're aware of it and we're familiar with it so that we can make that connection with him and I think that's why it works is because he's even though he does these really simple sentences you know it's not flowery it's not complicated he just brings you right to the point in each sentence and then moves on to the next one and i think you know you could do it in a different style but his style helps because it's so straight to the point and we can just follow it that easily he's also like you said these are references that he's made at some point and he's touching on them again and bringing them back up kind of repeatedly like i mean the story's called trilobites and there's mention of how he wants to find one of these things he's looking for them throughout they become this like weird symbol for him as well so he's mentioning that something like that throughout the story but because we've kind of been introduced to it a couple times or he's kind of circled back and like expounded on this topic it becomes like bigger and bigger and bigger so we've talked in past episodes of like I forget which writer this was but a writer kind of circling the point it was the one that you shared about um, the town where everybody's really happy but it's because they're like sacrificing the one child oh yeah Ursula Le Guin Ursula K Le Guin the ones who walk away from Omalas Right. So you read that story and it feels almost repetitive at a point, but then you you realize kind of on the second read that she's getting closer and closer to her point, right? She is covering new territory and new ground and he's doing the same thing, but he's doing it almost backwards, right? She starts with these like broad concepts of like happiness and then like gets closer to the center and the point. And he's kind of like, I'm looking for a trill bite. And you're like, okay, cool. Why? And it's later with each reference and with all of the other mentions of all of his other preoccupations that you get 
get this bigger and bigger picture of, of the meaning there. So you're right. It's not that we're pulled out because we're distracted or like trying to catch our breath or get our footing in this story. But it's all, I wouldn't even call this stream of consciousness because it is more intentional than that. Maybe not on first read, but either Mr. Pancake or our narrator is trying to communicate something to you, right? He's being intentional about what he's telling you. And I think this is kind of like a story like we're going to talk about a lot like the cougar where we have this other young guy in some kind of a rural community. This guy's like we said from West Virginia, but who is lacking direction in both of these stories, their fathers have died, which is huge. But in both these stories, neither narrator has acknowledged why it's huge, right? He keeps talking about how his dad's dead and how his mom wants to sell a farm and move to Cincinnati and he doesn't want to go. But that's not really the problem here, right? He's also talking about how Ginny, his like long-term girlfriend or whatever, like she's going on to something bigger and better and she's back in town when they have this rendezvous, but she's also got a boyfriend that she's going back to. So like she has moved on, right, from this town and he is still there, even though he at one point had, you know, verbalized plans to leave. And he's also got this opportunity in front of him to move with his mom to Cincinnati, even though he like assures his mother that he's not going to do it and he doesn't want to do it. And he doesn't really say why. He's just like, I can't. So both of these people are stuck, but not for as honest as they are with the reader. It's not all out there, right? Like we are having to parse what he means by trilobites. Yeah, he talks about the permanent the outcrop, or um, I forget what he called it, the little stone hill where he gets all these fossils that he brings in to his friend and says, what's that one? And uh, it's like apparently a, a bet. If he could bring the other guy something that he doesn't recognize, they get a, they'll buy him a drink or something like that. Right. But if he get, but if he knows what it is, then then he has to buy the drink. So throughout, there's this, you know, he's out on the farm and he knows the land. He knows everything about it. And it all, it's like this sense of permanence where these animals lived millions of years ago and um, even describes the rock as at some point as something that's just going to last forever. I forget what the line is, but it's like, it was like, it'll last forever or as long as, or or close enough to matter or something like that. As long as it matters, I think is what, something like that. It's like, so within you know, the span of human. You got it. I think how it has always been here and always will be, at least for as long as it matters. Yeah. So that sense of permanence is one level. And then he, so he's clinging to this farm that is trying to, his mom is going to sell. He's actually encouraging her to sell in a weird way, but he wants to stay there without admitting it. Right. And this is what you're talking about where he's not telling us that he wants to stay there, but we can figure that out. If we look at what he's doing, he's like clinging to things, but he never tells us. He never tells us that he wants to stay. Right. So I'm not going to be able to articulate this, but this is the kind of guy that had I read him in college, I would have been like, oh my God, he's so in touch with his feelings. I want to bang him. (laughs) What a great writer. Right. And then he would be the guy that like you meet and he's kind of slimy because he's not being honest with himself. Like there is a disconnect. I'm not saying this about DJ Pancake as much as like this character. Right. But it's almost like like the emo guy. right who oh he's writing music that's like so great but he's also blind to his own situation right so we can read this and think that this is a narrator who's being open and honest and contemplative of the situation and so raw and we trust everything he says because he's a white male first person narrator but there is a disconnect and you do have to look a little harder for it and that it feels like is where the story is so maybe that's what all these fans of Mr. Pancake are pointing to right like maybe we are supposed to be privy to 
to that somehow. Maybe that's like that next level of appreciating his work is knowing that this is a character that isn't being honest fully or doesn't fully understand what his hangup is. But um, it's at least like something that feels similar in these two pieces. Yeah. We talked about in that Harvey story, the uh, white, white noise where... Yeah. By Emma Klein? Yes, Emma Klein. Um, it wasn't clear. Like, he never came out and said that the guy he thought was Don DeLillo was not Don DeLillo. But you get a sense that it is as you read it. Like, it's not really Don DeLillo. And and he's making up all these connections with him at the same time. And in these two stories where you find a way to recognize, or especially this one, you recognize that he's not thinking about something. Even though, like you said, it's not quite stream of consciousness, but it's very much in his thoughts. And so we get a lot of what he's thinking, right? And then you notice that he, there's certain things he's not thinking about. That is such a, a fascinating thing as a writer to how do you communicate or put on the page somehow without putting on the page those ideas? Like you make yeah. it so that people just get it without writing it down. Right. It might be that this whole cliche of the first person male narrator in distress is code for pay attention to what I'm not saying. Like this (laughs) whole thing could be a device, right? And why this genre, because this feels like a genre is so popular. Like these bleeding heart male first person characters who are also lost in small town America or in rural America. Like it feels like a common mood. Uh, Kevin Canty, who we read God's work, he wrote that novel that I mentioned and that I read a chapter from in the never aired version of this podcast. Um, It's called like the underworld and it was all about like a mining town. And there was a sense of inertia there, except that because it was a novel, there was this actual climax, right? Like there's a disaster in the mine and, and that's the whole story. Except that if there was a short story version of that, there might not be an actual mine explosion or disaster on the page. There would be that sense though of like inertia that is so common in these small town rural America stories where like, like maybe that's authentic and everyone that lives in all of these places feels stuck. But I don't think that that's true. I don't think that everybody that lives there is sad or directionless or, you know, reaching for something that they can't have. But that is commonly what we see when first person male narrators like this are, they're put in these strong, memorable settings, right? There are narrators like this that are in other settings, but who are they then, right? They're not, they don't fall in the genre. It's the setting that is connecting them right it's the circumstances it's like oh and you're poor that's a separate genre and by when i say poor too i don't mean can't feed themselves i don't mean like uneducated i just mean like we have this like sense that there's something poor about their circumstances like that they can't get beyond or that their circumstances are also what's trapping them right it could be money or it could be like a lack of direction because there's lack of education or opportunities or it could be they live in a former mining town and and it's going to shit like something out of their control societally they feel compelled to work a farm that they can't yeah maintain. right yeah. and there's something so much more sympathetic than this than if this character were in new york city working at an advertising agency right <laughs> yeah i don't really care then if he's pining after this woman that he had plans with in high school because he has so much going for him i mean i i love this story because i love the mood but i but i do think it's this like common kind of genre 
So obviously, though, this is a guy that is familiar with the types of places that he's writing about. For Mr. Pancake, like he lives and breathes this lifestyle, right? You can read this scene where he's gutting the snapping turtle and believe that he's done it himself, right? I don't think he had to research it. Or if he did, like he nailed it, right? His life was his research. Yeah, this yeah, this is a guy that um, was probably like really close to it. So there's an authenticity here that is like instantly recognizable down to the dialogue. It doesn't feel like it's appropriating this lifestyle at all or anything like that. I'm not like criticizing it that way. I'm not criticizing the story at all, really, just in the bigger sense of like types of fiction that we like. It's like we're talking about why we like this stuff, why we like sad stuff. But no, like this is a this is a story where the setting is right there in every scene. Like you don't get trilobites everywhere, right? So we know that we have to be somewhere for this to happen. And even the scene that I that I read with Ginny, like he's looking out the window and, and the setting matters and he's pointing to the hills and he's pointing to her house that he can see and I think anytime you can like do that in your own work even if that means like actually setting a story that feels like it doesn't have a setting in a place that you are familiar with like even if it's your hometown like that adds something and I've done that in the past intentionally or unintentionally where I'm like well what I'm thinking of happened in Menor, Ohio so I guess I guess I'll really play that up and it really adds something because you don't always realize something that has felt important to you in life having been that strongly connected to where it happened until you you're kind of exploring it on the page and trying to convey that same sense to someone. Yeah. We also have here the fact that this character's father died tragically and tragically in a noble way, right? All these fathers also die these like deaths that become symbols themselves, right? And then these sons are kind of trapped in this loop where like, how do I do my dad proud? Do I have to die from a war injury? There's also that that aspect where they're not confronting that on the page either. They're not really talking about like the dad's legacy and what it means to them, but that's also what's at play, obviously, right? Fathers and sons. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's trying to live up to him, like taking care of the farm. And he knows he's failing. Yeah. But then he also talks a lot about how he beat him. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah, this is a guy with like a dad who he had like a complicated relationship with. Like the last story, the dad wasn't super vocal or like overtly affectionate. And in this story, it's like, yeah, my dad beat me with snakes, but uh, I hope we are, you know, honoring him by the way we're handling this land deal. So I thought it was interesting. So at the beginning, he um, he's at the restaurant or at the diner or something with um, that guy. He's bringing the fossils to him and saying, is that a trilobite? And they're like, nope, that's this and that. But he, um, the waitress, I think, or the hostess or somebody there is a sister of somebody. And he uh, he's like, oh, that's jailbait. I can't go after her. Oh, right. Yeah. And then, you know, that's kind of like, it feels like a throwaway, right? But then he spends the entire story thinking about and this expectation of what's going to happen with Ginny when they finally get back together at night. And then like what you read, they, you know, they have sex in that. I don't remember what the building was, but broken down. They're like on top of trash on the floor and stuff. But he says something like, we're not making love. And then he's not even thinking about her. He's thinking Mm -hmm. about the girl from the diner from the morning. And then it's over and she leaves and leaves him there, drives away in a car that he was with her to get there in. It was such a, I don't know. It feels like, you know, this the thing that he wants the entire story and then when he's when he gets it at the end he's not really getting it he's not getting what he wants and then he so he's not even it's like it's another version of the not thinking about things he's thinking about something else while it's happening right 
Yeah, he's not articulating to us, the reader, that this is unsatisfying for him. We're having to read between the lines of his thoughts. And maybe he's not admitting it to himself either. But I think it starts to go off the rails. Like throughout the story, he's ta- he's hinting at the fact that Ginny's back in town. And he talks about their background. At one point, she drives past the property while he's out there with his mom and waves. And she's like, he's like, He'll, she'll be back. You know, like she's literally making the rounds that day before they get together. And when they do get back together, like he gets in the car and she kisses him on the cheek and she says he he thinks to himself she looks different I've never seen these clothes and she wears too much jewelry and then she looks at him and says you look great haven't changed a bit and I think that's kind of what probably ends up setting him off not that he has some kind of like reaction to that itself but it sets a tone that she's gone she's the girl that left the small town and she's different and she's changed and they don't have anything in common now except for their past and so when she says in the scene that I read like why can't we have fun Kali he's he, he doesn't doesn't answer her but like he's too hung up on the fact that like this girl is not just out of his league anymore or anything it's more just like she's out of touch like she's out of reach like he knows that she's here temporarily but he's having to admit that like her mind's not even here in this moment right he says like I rut her like so he's thinking about the girl at the diner but like she's thinking like I want to get the fuck out of here right like my arm is hurting and this guy wants to bang me and I'll let him because we used to do that but like I'm going to take his car and leave because this feels weird to me and like she just wants to be kind of done with what they're doing on the ground there but I think she probably also if this were in her head wants to be done with this engagement that she agreed to right this is like anytime you ever visit your hometown you know whether you live far away from it or not like there's people that expect you to come and say hi and you go through this charade of like caring about what it is they've had going on right and sometimes you do actually care about that person but the encounter is this fake encounter where you meet at a bar that you never used to go to because it's between where you're both at right and you try to have this like important meaningful moment but it's really just a catch-up session you're not creating any memories there it's not like an experience you'll reflect on it's like having an email exchange like in this abandoned building it's like niceties having to be performed in person so i think we've all had that experience too it's like oh i missed you and then you see them and you're like "Ooh, i regret this (laughs) not really yeah so he's like he's like grappling with that because this is like our other narrator right this is all in the context of his father having recently died and he is probably grieving and just like our first character had to then experience the loss of his dog Kali has to experience the loss of this girl all over again right she was always out of reach but he didn't know that she was lost until she like comes back and he realizes like there's nothing here for us anymore yeah there's that moment when he says uh let me go with you I say Mm -hmm. I want to be sorry but I can't like he didn't really want to say that he knew it wasn't the right thing to say there's no way she was gonna let him go with her yeah I wonder too if he even meant it right like he's just kind of like hoping for someone to like throw him a life raft yeah and her response is Kali please and shoves him back and then she just leaves right they're like that's kind of the end of what they say to each other right or she says I want to go my arm hurts and then that was it yeah he's like he's losing a lot of things all at once because his dad is the only one that's died but his mom is also going to be out of dodge here soon and and Ginny was the one person he liked in town so he's kind of like what do I do Mm, everything's falling apart yeah it's like how I moved down to Naples I had a really great friend group and then they all started getting new jobs and moving out of town and I was like wait 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 what are you guys doing uh you're the only reason I stayed and now I'm here in my own house and like things are good but it was an adjustment you know to like see the people in the town leave because then you wonder like why am I in this place if the other people are other places and this is what these characters are dealing with only they're not articulating it like I just did (laughs) (laughs) they're like why am I sad that is interesting it makes me think of like a movie where 
character, you don't get the internal thoughts of a character because it's always third person. You're always looking at the character on the screen, but they're like staring off into whatever, yeah. into the scene, into the terrain or buildings or whatever it is, or at the fireplace. And all the story and all the context that's built up around it, you kind of get a sense of what they might be thinking, or you know what they're thinking about, if, even if you don't necessarily know the content of their thoughts. And this feels like that. Like he's always looking out at the scenery. He's always contemplating something and you're getting glimpses of it. You kind of have to fill that in. Right. It's almost as if maybe this could have been written in third person and like not much would have been lost in terms of what he's being honest about. This could have been in like a close third person. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it could have been. Like the other one too. Yeah. Or it could have been a far, it could have been a distant third person. But then if we weren't in his head so much, I bet what he was actually thinking would be more clear than it is now because it wouldn't be muddled with all the stuff that he's convincing himself he's thinking about. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that helps, that makes the best fiction is when there is a, that kind of disparity. When there isn't? There is. Oh, when you yeah. get that double vision, I right. think that helps stories a lot. It's like the character, you know, certain kind of story, the character is trying to convince you that this is what's going on. And then you realize that that's not quite it. Maybe that's part of this genre we're kind of circling around as well is seeing things in two different ways. It's almost like if this character were more in touch with his feelings, we'd have to call it meta because that's like the next level of like consciousness about his own problem, right? Would have to be him telling you that he's aware of it. Yeah, because he would be commenting on how he wasn't <laughs> yeah. commenting on it. And be, He'd be like, I know I'm avoiding the problem. Yeah. <laughs> like all good characters, I'm not going to tell you what's really going on. Right. There's an idea. If there's a prompt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unreliable narrator, the liar narrator, the... Um, the winking narrator, the one who tells you, you're going to mm -hmm. have to work this out. I'm not going to help you. The winking narrator is definitely the meta narrator. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from everything that I feel like I'm criticizing, like this is like strong language, like strong scenes, like you're picturing stuff. The voice is like unmistakable. I read something else or I skimmed something else in preparation for choosing this one to share. And like, yeah, you can recognize this guy. The setting, one and the same. And then he's just obviously got like terrific lines throughout, which I can't even bother to read because it's like every line is, is something that I would take forever to write. But you can tell this is his natural inclination to describe things this way, like at least on the page. It's amazing too, like when an author probably talks like his characters, right? And sounds like he's from this region of the country, then writes something that's like so introspective, really, and beautifully written, even though he's dropping like the gerunds when he talks. So I'm going to read his other stuff. There's only a few things that were published because like I said, his life was cut really short, but he's one of those authors you read about and wish was still around. I guess my takeaway for this... It's tough because I feel like I was mostly just like comparing it to the other story. And I, I don't want to say something similar about like being intentional about like symbols and things. But I think here, especially the section that I read is like near the very end of the piece. And he's still going on and on about the setting in a way that's pertinent to the actual scene. I feel like when I do have a strong setting or I intentionally introduce it, I often like forget about it or like lose it or drop it at some point. Right. Like I think to myself that a setting is just supposed to do that. It's just supposed to be the base layer. Like I tell you where it's at and then you're good to go. But that's not true. Like you sometimes need to be reminded. Don't just set me there at the beginning. When I think of setting, I think like putting someone at a, at a table setting and being like, you sit here and you can see everything, right? But it's like, maybe, but like you gotta remind me or build on it. So he builds on it in that scene that I read where he's saying like, I can see your house and this is Company Hill.
hill and it adds so much to that scene right because we can see them looking out the window together down on their town and that in and of itself is a metaphor so I'm thinking of other stories where I've patted myself on the back because I think I've established a strong setting but I probably haven't done it throughout and I could and should and it would add a lot so yeah I think one of the strongest parts of it is the setting is so much this is a cliche to say this but the setting is a character yeah but there's something to that there's uh yeah because the setting has like an active role in the story and the way the story's put together. It's like how animals are conscious beings, but plants are not. But plants are still doing things, right? They're still growing and they're alive. It's like the setting is still this thing. Even even if it's not like taking an active role, it's still alive and breathing and moving and doing its own separate thing. It doesn't, it's not just some dead earth that we're in or on. Yeah. So it is a character that way. Like it might not be like making choices, but it's adding things all the time it's 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 alive yeah so every interaction it's not just character a character b it's character a character b and the room they're in or the the ground Mm -hmm. they're standing on which they have to manage in some way and interact with their conflict can't resolve without also going through that setting right that's a i don't know i like that way of thinking about it yeah because otherwise like all of our stories would be like in outer space yeah or just a void (laughs) just uh blank she shouted to john but he couldn't hear she he couldn't (laughs) hear her because time and space and science. That's right. Sound doesn't travel in space. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Gravity. I would have to research the setting. All right, John, what's your takeaway? I think my takeaway is just that idea of the unstated thing, you know, infusing the fiction with something that's not directly addressed and contemplated, but having it in the background. I'm not sure if I could come up with on the fly a piece of advice to say this is how you do that because it's I don't know exactly how it's done off the top of my head. You know, there's something about something about the story that makes makes you look deeper. And we talked about different possibilities of why that is, whether it's the first person male character or if it's something to do with the mood or the setting. But but my takeaway is just to think about that as like a have it in your mind as a way to or as some keeping something that's not being addressed and and maybe working symbolically around it, like the last story with the cougar, this story. I think that moment at the end when he and she are having sex and he's not thinking about her is kind of like a, a clue. You know, it's like a, hey, he's not thinking about this. Why don't you think about that and see what that means for the rest of the story? Yeah, I don't know that I could give advice about how to do it because it's sometimes we talk about, you know, your reader's smarter than you think. Give your reader more credit. You know, don't spell things out. But it's, it's beyond that. It's not just not spelling something out. It's also cluing us into the fact that the narrator is maybe not being honest with himself somehow or that I think can only be established when almost like after the fact like I read this twice and I didn't get that when I read this the first time I wasn't like he's not being honest with himself I had to like really think about like what about this I don't know it's it's another layer yeah it's tough it's tough to do my takeaway is just to do it somehow figure out a way to do it (laughs) I'm gonna think about it I'm definitely gonna think about it because I feel like this is like a challenge yeah and then you probably gotta assume that like not all your readers are going to pick up on it but that's not necessarily a failure yeah because it has it has to work on its own it has to work on its face too yes it can't be a story about a guy that's not telling you something maybe it has to be a story about a guy that's telling you everything but it still doesn't feel complete or something he's not telling you about the setting it's like we don't know where we are but the setting's really important yeah so this is set in outer space (laughs) all right thanks guys If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, napleswritersworkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.